Hello and welcome to In Their 20s, a podcast with the best advice. My name is Landon Campbell and I'm your host. And today we feature Eric Bond, the co-founder and general partner of The Hustle Fund. The Hustle Fund is an early stage venture capital firm based in San Francisco in the Bay Area, my hometown. His company invests primarily in software startups at pre-seed and seed stages, backing founders who exhibit great execution and velocity, aka hustle. Before becoming a professional investor, he spent over a decade as an operator and project manager at Facebook, Instagram, Intuit, and so many more companies. Eric shares so much great advice in our interview, not just for 20-somethings, but for anybody who wants the best advice. So let's jump in with Eric to hear about his professional journey, how he got into venture capital, and his advice for people in their 20s. Hey, Landon. How you doing? <laughs> just fine. Nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. How's your day going? Uh, pretty good so far. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. You know, um, I've been following you on Twitter uh, ever since we sort of first started interacting, and I've just been really, really enjoying all the content and all the, the positive vibes you're sending out there. So really appreciate this opportunity to chat with you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I mean, hearing that from you really means a lot. Um, I have, you know, luckiest job ever. I mean, really, I get to speak with people I've looked up to for so long. Um, sure. Really, I've learned so much from. Um, and not even, you know, one-on-one, I've, you know, been following your journey for a while, but now to finally be able to speak with you and <laughs> a few of your, um, you know, best practices and advice and get that before I share that with my audience. It's just uh, really powerful. So it means a lot. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's my pleasure. And, um, yeah, I, I think this is such a cool project and your guests seem really amazing. And so I'm honored that you would take me on <laughs> as well. Of course, of course. Um, so we can go ahead and get started if that's okay with you. Let's uh, do it. Yeah, so it seems you already know so much about the podcast. Um, you know, this is in their 20s. We've just been interviewing the most influential people to talk about their 20s, plain and simple, uh, just to give my peers um, a better idea of what they need to be doing right now and the best advice. Um, so I'd love to start with the beginning because we're going to be going over, um, you know, your time in BC, uh, you're the creation of the Hustle Fund, but let's start early. You know, I saw that you had a sociology major um, in college. Um, and I read around that you were looking to pursue um, a life as a lawyer. Uh, clearly, things didn't work out in that direction. So talk to me about, uh, you know, what led to that change in your days at Stanford? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, when I was younger, I guess, even before my 20s as a teen and, you know, you're in college and then now you're at the precipice of looking at what the entire future could look like. Um, you're kind of presented, I think, with like a really unfair question often as a kid, but also in early adulthood, which is what do you want to do with your life? And it's a really unfair question because I think that to determine that you just need to live your life and have experiences and fail a lot. And committing to a profession is actually a really big deal because generally those who want to be doctors start when they're 17, 18 years old, and even before then, doc lawyers, all those kinds of things. So um, I really loved writing. I loved people and studying people and arguing and, you know, conversing. So I thought that law could be a good fit. But uh, ultimately, I did something that was very smart before I decided to really take, um, uh, I guess, law school very seriously, which was interview a bunch of lawyers. One summer before uh, my senior year, I talked to over a dozen lawyers of a 12 different types of fields, um, you know, civil law and, you know, litigators, all that stuff. And I discovered that there's a common pattern to every single one of these conversations, which was, 
I couldn't keep awake. I, I could not keep myself awake in these conversations. It was just so freaking boring, uh, this work. No offense to the lawyers out there that found their journeys there. And I quickly realized that I had to pivot away from that stuff because I was never going to find kind of passion in, in the law. And as a result, uh, you know, I remember talking to my mom saying like, I can't do law. And then she said to me in her broken Korean English, basically like, Eric, you are too dumb to be a doctor and probably a lawyer anyway. So maybe you should think about business. <laughs> and that's when I was like, all right, you know, <laughs> I got it. And then because I didn't know anything, I thought like, maybe I should go to business school. And that actually accidentally set me on a path to entrepreneurship because this, uh, this practice of actually preparing for the entrance exam for, for business school called the GMAT led me to start a blog called Beat the GMAT which ended up becoming a nine-year project of nine different types of pivots that eventually turned out to become a data analytics business wow. that I ran and eventually sold to um, uh, the Daily Mail group. And um, yeah, so it was an accidental kind of path into entrepreneurship, and I could never have predicted this swerve. That's so interesting. First off, because I want to break down a few things that you mentioned, uh, you know, mothers always know best. So I know I loved hearing that. Um, second of all, um, you know, I believe it's called identity capital. We're in your 20s. You need to just be picking up so many different skills, uh, try new jobs, have new conversations, just learn, 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 be a sponge. Um, you don't always have to have everything figured out so early and it's okay to try things, try new things to say, hey, you know what? I don't wanna do this. So that's awesome that you went out. Um, and I think that's really great advice for any 20 something that doesn't exactly know what they wanna do. Go out and speak to people you know, in a certain industry. Um, just learn about their day-to-day -day routine, simple conversations, and that can help you really make a better decision about what you want to be doing. Um, and the second thing that you really mentioned um, that was impactful to me was um, just your experience, you know, with the company that you ended up selling to the, the Daily Mail, um, kind of described as an accidental project that, you know, turned into this nine-year journey. Um, I just really find that so powerful. You know, we don't always need to know, like, hey, I need to be doing this exactly in two years, three years. Sometimes, you know, certain things end up becoming other certain things. So really powerful to hear that. Um, so also, yes. journey, you worked um, at numerous companies, including Intuit, Instagram, Facebook, um, as a PM. I've seen, you know, a few other positions aligned there as well. I'd love to hear about this uh, time in your life. Yeah, so I was very lucky. So once I figured out that uh, law school wasn't a path for me, you know, I was a pretty mediocre student. I went to an excellent school, but like didn't do very much in the summers, smoked a lot of weed, played a lot of video games, grades weren't that good. But through um, a really good friend, he was able to go to bat for me to land my first job, which is at Intuit. And that's where I actually really got excited about technology. So Intuit, it's a very well-run business. It wasn't terribly exciting as a 20-year-old to be there, but I was able to get into a rotational leadership program that gave me broad exposure to corporate strategy, product management, and so forth. The first job though, that they put me on was in Tucson, Arizona as a customer support agent, taking phone calls from people who had needed help from, for their QuickBooks product. It was deeply humbling. And one of the hardest jobs I ever had, but one of the best jobs I ever had too, because all I did was listen to these people's stories and, ch and challenge myself in getting these extremely angry calls into super happy people by the end of it. So a lot of social psychology dynamics were learned there. And also, frankly, a lot of good humility was, was gained, which is really odd for me to brag about that I, like, I'm bragging about being humble, <laughs> which is like, you know, there'd be these people who'd be like, you know, from all walks of life, you know, 
uh, high school dropouts, uh, those who've been like exiled from their families, like recovering drug addicts who are like on the phones alongside of me as this hoity-toity college, college grad, but they're so much better at the job than I ever was. And I had to put myself in a position to learn from them. And I realized uh, from that experience that everyone has an awesome journey right now. Uh, some like Everyone also is ridiculously good at something that you're not good at, uh, regardless of pedigree or privilege and so forth. And it was just like a different kind of graduate school of education on just like understanding humanity more, which really fed my sociology stuff, uh, I guess, proclivities. So when it came to like working at these companies, Intuit, Facebook, and Instagram, um, I, I ended up finding that product management was a great fit for me. And it's sort of like being a miniature CEO of like a feature or a small product. And it gives you sort of a well-rounded education of what is it like to interface with legal, marketing, designers, engineers, and how do you like sort of serve as connective tissue to sort of bring it together uh, to release a, a really cool experience for, for users. So very much enjoyed it, but really my heart was always in leading my own businesses. I love that. Wow. I mean, uh, you just had that entrepreneur bug in you uh, from the beginning. So which is why you know how to work so well with founders, you know, you know what it really takes to be a good founder, you know, be a resilient entrepreneur. I mean, I actually don't think that I ever wanted to be an entrepreneur at all. Like I, like growing up in Michigan, like I didn't have good mental models for this stuff. Like um, my neighbors were doctors and lawyers as well. I've been like, you know, worked at General Motors and things like this. And, um, but I didn't really understand what that, what actually meant. Like I wanted to be a writer and a storyteller. And actually, um, I do think that that through many, many years in this industry that you know, those who do eventually sustain themselves uh, at the helm of these businesses have to hone lots of really good storytelling and good listening experiences. So when I sort of figured that out, it became like a good fit. But I would say that I had never, I never had even as a kid intention of wanting to run a business or anything like that, because I think I just didn't understand it or see it. Got it. Huh. So again, a lot to mention there. Um, you know, just going back a little bit to your points on humility. Um, you know, in the workplace. Uh, I think that's really powerful when you mentioned that just because I'd say, you know, humility, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, you know, is the basis of leadership. You know, you have to be open to understand that you don't know everything. Um, you need to understand that, you know, you should want to work with people and even hire people who know more than you, you know, in certain subjects, topics, whatever it might be. Um, so my next question is on leadership itself. You know, what are some other traits um, that you, you know, feel make you a strong leader um, across the numerous roles that you've had? So it's hard because I'm still learning. You know, this is the thing that's really interesting about this podcast premise is that, uh, you know, the 20s, I think, are often framed as like a period of very, very deep learning and experimentation. And I actually 100% agree with that. But my 30s were like that as well. And now that I'm about to turn 40, I think actually it's not going to stop this decade as well. Um, so I'm constantly trying to redefine myself as a better leader um, I'd say that a few things really have helped, which is spending a lot of time on becoming a better listener. And there's sort of like, you know, in the early days when I was a little bit more insecure, just starting my career, you know, for me, whenever I was hearing you, I, I wanted to like form rebuttals as people were talking to make myself sound smart. Right. And, and I discovered that because because I was so focused on my own voice, I actually wasn't hearing anything that the other person was saying, right? So trying to shut that off and just really, really listen to everyone, especially people on my team who might consider to be so brilliant. Um, and then just responding, you know, 
I think has been all the difference. And, and when you do that really well too, you can gather a lot of subtext about like, oh, you know, this person really has these kinds of needs that they need fulfilled professionally and personally. We can align in like some common goals this way. And then, you know, hopefully proceed to build something really great together. So um, to buttress like listening, you know, I go through a lot of therapy. I actually have like group therapy around like that trains empathy training and all that stuff. I'm very lucky to be in a position where I can invest in those kinds of resources. But those kinds of areas of schooling have been, I think, the biggest leverage and positive change education resources uh, that I've experienced in my entire life, more so than college or high school or anything like that. Of course. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people associate um, intelligence with speaking, but listening, you know, really comes first within communication. Um, and that's, you know, what I define communication as in my experience in sales, you know, it's always about problem solving, but you can't prob solve a problem unless you're able to listen and understand what the problem is. So that really goes, you know, beyond so many industries. I think everybody, you know, even in a non-professional environment, we all could be better listeners. Um, so I totally love that. So, you know, we spoke about your time uh, you know, as a PM into it, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I'd love to speak about your transition into VC. Um, obviously, it didn't just start with the creation of Hustle Fund. I believe there was an experience right before at 500 Startups. Um, I'd love to hear about that time um, and what you learned during your time there. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of things that are going on around that time. But I think that uh, what 500 really taught me uh, were a couple of things. One is actually how much I loved being on this side of the table as a venture capitalist. But two, uh, how broken a venture capitalist, uh, I guess the venture capital industry is that uh, where like Hustle Fund and my colleagues can actually try to do something to fix what we see needs to be fixed in this world. So I guess when we started Hustle Fund, you know, it really began in my experiences at 500 Startups where we were seeing lots and lots of companies, but a single question really kept on coming back, which was why is it that the exact same types of dudes are getting all the seed capital? And let me sort of expand this a little bit for you, which is like, if you're a white or Asian man who graduated from Stanford University with a degree in computer science and worked at a Google or Facebook, that is a very fundable profile. And I'm putting very heavy air quotes for those <laughs> who can't see this visually or just listening. It's a very like, quote unquote, fundable profile. But when we're looking to the data and seeing how these uh, largely men with lots of privilege and pedigree were performing, some of them did great. But it wasn't reliably predicted, predicting that just because you possess these phenotypes and pedigrees, it doesn't predict whether it's going to, you're going to reliably become a great founder over time. But a different kind of heuristic kept on appearing over and over again that we're seeing in our own angel portfolios at 500, which is this quality that we call hustle. So for us, hustle is defined as great execution meets high velocity. And it turns out that when you focus on founders who are really good at measurement, um, high throughput of their work, lots of experimentation, uh, constantly trying to optimize the quality of the work week after week, month after month, year after year, you just tend to grind out the best results. And also that great hustlers look like anyone and come from anywhere. Like you can just as easily find someone who possesses no privilege, uh, does not fit, I guess, the trope of what an ideal founder looks like, very heavy quotes in Silicon Valley and still be chasing huge unicorn outcomes with all the capability to do so. So when we had that insight, you know, we went on to create Hustle Fund, which um, I think is trying to take a very different approach towards inclusivity. Today, inclusivity and DEI is a virtue signaling exercise. It's like, 
pat myself on the back. I'm going to invest. I'm going to create a fund for black people and women. And, you know, like, look at me, you know, I'm going to carve out $20 million to do it out of my like $400 billion fund or whatever. And while maybe the intent behind that's fine. Um, to me, what I hear is a lowering of the bar. Mm-hmm. They're saying implicitly to me, like, I'm going to lower the bar to let more black people in or Latinx people or, or women or those who don't fit those kinds of like traditional tropes. But our view is actually the flip of it. If you want to make the most money in this game, then you should invite talent as widely as possible from wherever they are, whatever geography, whatever race, whatever gender, whatever like personal backgrounds, invite them to engage with them. And if you have a method in place to try to test and understand the team's hustle and markets to separate those who are true hustlers from those who aren't, you're actually going to make the most money. And this is how we actually came up with our funds model. So really quick on this, and that's a long answer is like, what we do is we start with a very, very fast $25,000 check that we write into a lot of teams. We do this in 220 companies in our current fund. Last month, we saw 700 deals. We invested in about seven companies that month. We'll then work with a team on growth projects. So each general partner on our team has started a scaled and sold a company with heavy emphasis, on, heavy emphasis on sales. We love coaching on these areas, but it's through the work where the true due diligence is happening, where we can get a much better sense of the team's operational hustle and market. The teams can judge us also to see if we're actually adding value. And in a subset of cases, if there's great hustle on both sides and we love the market opportunity, we'll concentrate much larger checks between $100,000 to $500,000 into those given companies one or two times more to make them a core position or fund. And when you invest in this way, it turns out that Focusing on hustle, again, produces real inclusivity. Today, about 40% of those core companies are women, 27% are underrepresented groups, 60% of our deals are outside Silicon Valley. Increasingly, every day, it just looks more and more like the population of the markets that we're serving because great founders, great hustlers look like anyone and come from anywhere. And a big goal that I have coming out of Hustle Fund at the end of like my last breath, along with thinking of my family and the people that I love in my life, is that we actually change the narrative of inclusivity being this thing that you do to just make yourself look good to actually being the way that you make the most money. And if we make the most money, it's going to inspire our peers who want to also make more money to actually treat inclusivity as actually a capital lever, right? And that I think will yield a much better environment for our kids to build companies over time. Of course. No, I really, really love the model. Um, and I love that you're just proving that through the deep thesis, you know, like over time, you know, this is what the vision is. And, you know, like you're really already seeing that in the over 200 companies you said that are a part of Hustle Fund, correct? Yeah. You know, you brought up a great point on inclusivity. You know, I feel like it's just very dramatized at a lot of companies, you know, and it's also a short term thing where, you know, this is an issue that we can fix tomorrow. This is an issue that we can fix next week. Um, but no, I just love that you guys, you know, within this, you know, creation of your hustle of the fund, you know, you really were intentional about it. Um, and you're trying to create lasting change. And you spoke about that, you know, change for your kids, your kids, kids, that is really, really powerful. Um, so I, I want to back up a tiny bit, um, you know, into more about the creation of hustle fund. Because um, clearly, you know, you mentioned earlier, you always knew you wanted to create your own thing. Um, and I just know it's just so powerful that you're able to create this for yourself. Um, and you're going to accomplish so many more feats, you know, within the hustle fund. But let's talk about some of the, you know, not so positive days, you know, in creating a VC fund, things that you learned along this journey um, that were maybe stressful, you know, mistakes that were made um, that, of course, you, know, you were able to fix moving forward. Um, but just any advice for that 20 something that, you know, one day thinks that they may want to have their own VC fund, um, you know, they may want to create their own company. Even. You know, I just love to break down some of those 
early challenges. Yeah. I mean, just cutting through the noise here, the easiest way to start a venture capital fund from scratch mm -hmm. is to already be rich. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> I mean, be already rich. It sure helps to be a dude. Sure helps to be a white or Asian dude. It sure helps to be a white or Asian dude with pedigree. Yeah. And to be honest with you, like drawing deep into my own privilege was probably the only way that we were able to unblock our first fund. It was not very easy even. We raised an $11.5 million fund, targeted 20, but got to a little bit more than half. It was me and Elizabeth and Shin, uh, my two other uh, uh, co-founders in this business. And um, it, it was brute force. We took 700 meetings. Some of the checks were as small as $10,000 wow. in order to unblock uh, that first capital. And that was with a team that possesses all the privileges in the world to make this happen. So it's really, really difficult. Now, that said, I think that since even 2017, when we began uh, Hustle Fund, the market has shifted to be slightly more equitable in some ways, but not in others. So in some ways, in the sense of like, now there's a lot more, uh, um, uh, there's a different kind of social contract, I think, between venture capitalists and founders. Founders don't want just cash as a commodity. You know, they like to see actually strategic help, more authentic relationships, not feeling like they're just like a puppet to a VC to be forced to raise when they're not ready to and so forth. So I'm starting to see more emerging managers, those who don't come from the traditional backgrounds, actually becoming successful. Like uh, an inspiration of mine is my friend Paige Vendorti, who started uh, Behind the Genius Fund. Um, so Ventures, and you know, she started by actually building a community or Lolita Taub, right? Yep. She's actually a really great community builder as well. And their discovery early on or their insight early on was just like, if you build a great community that helps one another with real authenticity behind it, <clears throat> that's actually a very attractive moat that people want to cross over and enter and stay within, right? And that's a great strategy. And from that, I think even if they don't have like come from like a multi-billion dollar family, <clears throat> necessarily, they, they can actually build real funds behind it. Now, the part of like kind of circling up on like why being rich matters, you know, when you do a fund, the tradition here is that you have to commit to at least minimum 1% of your own capital's commitment to every fund that you create. Let's say that you and I raise a $100 million fund. Okay, we do really well. You're going to pony up a million. I'm going to pony up a million. Or maybe I'll split it, 500,000, 500,000. We're going to do this every three years, okay? Mm -hmm. It takes a while for these deals to turn into liquidity when we invest at the seed stage. So that might mean that you and I are out of pocket one, two, three million dollars by the time we actually see real money coming back. That is super unfair because I am convinced that there are younger people out there who come from less privilege that could be way better at my own job, but don't have a few million dollars lying around. And it does draw down racial, racial and gender lines. So these are some of the things that I think more people are starting to recognize as institutional barriers and are slowly starting to go away too. Um, there's, there's cool opportunities to raise special purpose vehicle funds and do other kinds of things that kind of skirt these kinds of requirements. It's starting to change. And I celebrate that because we need more good humans on the side that don't look like the same dudes in the last 50 years. Of course. Yeah, no, I've been reading them about like a, um, you know, a lot of unique way. More people can get in the game. I mean, even like, a, I don't know if you're familiar with secure token offerings as well, but, um, you know, I think yeah. a lot of um, you know, change some because people are talking about it. I think that's the most important thing. It's a really important point that you mentioned. A lot of people are understanding these barriers um, now because you know they're 
becoming more public, um, you know, wishing it didn't have to take so long, but sure. uh, we're really starting to see how difficult it is for a lot of people to break into VC. Um, and it's unfortunate because there's just so much skill. There's so much talent out I'll, there. I'll try to actually be even more precise, Landon, on like the response here too, which is if you can get to like a hundred thousand followers on Twitter now, I actually think you actually have a real mode for distribution help with teams, drawing attention from LPs and founders to actually form something pretty remarkable. So like if I were starting from scratch early on and I knew I wanted to be a VC, I would be building my following, building my community, building my voice. And I think that can take you almost all the way to figuring out the rest, to actually build like a real franchise around yourself. Um, I think that's actually the more democratized way to allow people, regardless of backgrounds, to actually win in this space. I love today. that. Well, on the subject of that, because I'd love to be able to send some deal flow your way uh, through my podcast, you know, through people listening, um, you know, because we do have so many founders, we have so many young entrepreneurs um, that tune in every single week to hear, you know, the best advice from the best people. So, um, you know, obviously you invest mainly in uh, software companies, you know, at the pre-seed and seed stage, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, but what are some of the industries that excite you the most right now as a GP? Um, you know, and I know you kind of take deal flow from all different areas, but um, yeah. you know, what are you really, really excited about? I'd say that there's two that come to mind immediately. So first, uh, in the crypto space, you know, I do think that DeFi, uh, crypto projects, DAOs are going to be an enormous contributor to innovation. <laughs> it's yeah. already happening now. I don't. This is just going to be probably like no doubt for most people out there, but I don't really invest in tokens or protocols or those, that kind of layer of technology. I really am interested in the picks and shovels businesses. So like who's building like best in class, like tax stuff, like coin tracker, who, what, what kind of KYC AML solutions are out there, basically tools that kind of enable the system to allow people to build, right? Th those are actually the kind of software projects that get me most excited uh, and frankly, I'm just too scared to do anything that's like kind of token buying or related, like hedge fund style. That's one. Second is actually women's health. So what I really find hilarious, percent of VC funds are run by men predominantly as general partners. We're one of the 5% that is women-led. I have two general partners and 66% of my team are women. I'm the only dude on the on general partnership side. And um, half of the world's population are women. And, you know, there's things that are perceived as icky that people don't want to talk about in male-dominated conversations, like menstrual blood. You know, I find actually microbiome to be fascinating. And it turns out that women have natural cycles for sampling their microbiome in ways that can produce incredible returns on personalized health. And I'm looking for people who are creating like smart tampons, smart pads, uh, very interesting blood analysis things. I also like other icky things related to my microbiome, like poop. Turns out everyone poops almost every day. And there's a lot of data there on disease markers, smart toilets, smart sampling, and things like this. I think uh, you know anything in the digital health space that's talking about personalized medicine that isn't interrupting your, re your regular life or cycles, but is actually just something that you can quickly sample and just glean data from to change the, the direction of your personal health gets me very, very excited. Um, so yeah, those are microbiome kind of related things, especially with regard to women's health and also crypto stuff. It's kind of cool to me. Of course, yeah. Um, so in college, I was the um, VP of my student body, and uh, you know, I led an effort initiative. You know, obviously with the entire team to bring premenstrual products to campus, and we made it happen. But I just remember um, it, so many people were just you know not interested in discussing it, or you know they just 
which I never understood, you know, but um, I love that you are totally open to that and, you know, looking and actively looking for companies, um, you know, both with women's tech, um, you know, health, health tech, and then also on the crypto side. So hopefully people are listening to this um, and they know where to go, which is the hustle fund. Yeah. Thank you so much for offering that up too. We're always excited to meet these young hustlers. Well, Eric, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, this really made my week. Um, I just was on advice overload. I mean, cause I, you really had so much amazing things to share. And I'm just really fortunate to have an opportunity to speak with you. Um, and I noticed how busy you are. So just thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for dedicating 30 minutes of your busy schedule to speak with me on my podcast and help change, um, you know, how 20 somethings think today. And that's all I'm trying to do. Just inspire and educate people. Yeah, Landon, very much appreciate this opportunity. I think that the service that you're providing in this kind of series is super important. Um, and I very much hope that as you develop your own voice and your, your distribution and reach, you may consider also joining me on this side of the table someday as a capital allocator, because we can always use great human beings like yourself on this side, supporting founders. So thank you for what you do. Thank you, Eric. That really means a lot. Um, I'm hoping to stay in touch. And, you know, of course, I'm assuming a lot of people will be reaching out after the interview. Um, I'll make sure to send them your way, uh, you know, after I vet and make sure that they're a good opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity again. Really nice to meet you. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. All right. Peace out. Bye. Thank you so much for streaming our exclusive interview with Eric Bond, the co-founder and general partner at The Hustle Fund. If you enjoyed his advice and want more content like this, make sure to subscribe to In Their 20s wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in next week for another interview with a very special guest. See you soon.